please join with me in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you so much, Lord, as what we just sang. I thank you for what seems to be reckless love that you give to us, that you lavish upon us, that you bestow to us, Lord, that you would chase after us, that you would care for people like us, Lord. We've done so much wrong. We've done so many things, but Lord, you love us regardless. You offer us grace and extend mercy. Lord, I thank you so much for that. For each and every single person that is viewing this, that is listening to this, Father, I pray that you would just speak to them. Lord, that it would not be my words that are heard, but Father, your words would come through these speakers and that they would just impact in the way that only you could impact. Lord, I'm thankful that your Holy Spirit continues to move and work, and I humbly ask that you would just continue to do that now, that you would meet your people, that you would speak through me, and that you would just have your will done in this place, Lord, in this community, in our lives, in our church, in our communities. Lord, we thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, again, just to introduce myself, if we haven't met, my name is Ben Dieterle, and I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the Christian Life Center. And uh, know that you have a ton of different options online and even in person as we start to kind of go green from COVID. There's a lot of different places that you could be, and we want to thank you for investing and spending some time here, hopefully trying to challenge yourself and to grow in God's Word. And uh, today, I'm pretty excited that I get to share with you. And uh, as you can see from the screen behind me, uh, I want to share with you from, uh, uh, from the book of Acts. But I, I do have to explain kind of my graphic. If you are trying to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts 29, or to the book of Acts chapter 29, I do want to let you know that there is no Acts chapter 29, okay? There is a book of Acts, but it ends at Acts chapter 28. And the whole idea of what I'm hoping to kind of paint a picture for you today is that you would understand that as the Holy Spirit empowered his disciples, that as the gospel spread, that as the, this incredible kind of wildfire happens of the gospel going to all the corners of the earth, that God was moving and working then, and he still is moving and working in our hearts and our lives and in our communities today. And so in a sense, we are the next chapter of Acts, and hence the title Acts chapter 29. So God is not done. The Holy Spirit has not finished his work. He is continuing to move and work, and we have the opportunity to partner with him in his work and in his journey. So that's why we're calling this message Acts chapter 29. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we have been uh, going through a series where we're talking about the Holy Spirit and his, and his empowerment of the disciples and the growth of the early church. Uh, and I, for one, feel like it's been a great series where I just am just remembering what the Holy Spirit does within my life and how he invites me to join him in. And really, as the outreach pastor, that's what I want to challenge you with today is to join in the work of the Holy Spirit and go for the things that God has for you, specifically within conversations about the gospel. How do you approach people? How do you talk to them? And, and what I want to do is kind of look at Acts chapter 16. There's three specific conversations that take place that I think are beneficial for us. And we're going to kind of work through that today. Um, but really, as we kind of set the stage, if you will, for what's happening in, in Acts chapter 16, uh, you have to understand that as, as the Holy Spirit fell, this small movement that started with 12 men on a hillside who had no power, they had no money, no endowments, no celebrity, no celebrity recognition, it started as this small movement but what they did have was a conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead and that a strange power had come upon them called the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And from there, what happens is that the gospel begins to spread. And it continues to spread and continues to spread. And, and it's a pretty cool image. In fact, I found these images as I was kind of preparing for, uh, for today's message. And I want to share with you these images if you can see them. Um, this first image that I'll show you that you can kind of see behind me is it, there's a specific area kind of to the right side where it's lit up in green. This is kind of what they believe was the, uh, this is after or right around Paul's first missionary journey. This is kind of the, the amount of people that are actually saved that identify as Christians. It's around 45 AD, not very much going on. But as you see and hear the continuation of the gospel spreading as the Holy Spirit is moving, empowering his people to communicate and to talk about the gospel, that continues to grow. So that the next picture you see is that this is probably during Paul's second missionary journey. You see on the right-hand side that it's continuing to grow. It's no longer just a small little dot, and that's in about 20 years or maybe 20 to 30 years. There's significant growth. But when you kind of zoom out even a little bit more to the year 325, what you see is that almost half of the entire Roman Empire has identified themselves as Christians. I think scholars said it was around like 56%, uh, more than half of the entire Roman Empire has identified themselves as Christian. Man, that's, that is spreading like wildfire, and it's pretty incredible to see and to hear of, so much so that in about 380, I believe it was, that the official religion of Rome becomes Christianity. And there's some challenges and some difficulties in that, which is for another time, another day. But the gospel was spreading. The Holy Spirit was moving and working. And he is still moving and working to this day. And so what I want to do today is, is look at, like I said, Acts chapter 16. And I think it's important to kind of ask ourselves, well, how did, how did this, this spread of the gospel happen? And, and I think that there's a really big part of that is that, number one, the, what caused the spread of the gospel so much was God himself. The Holy Spirit moving and active, living and working and going for it. And it's amazing how even God had brought things into alignment where the entire world in 300 BC was conquered by Alexander the Great, but then the Romans conquered the Greeks. And while the Greeks had their kind of own way, and, and I'll say that the Rome... Um, the way that Rome did things, the, the way that Rome uh, had their own... What's the word I'm trying to look for? I'm struggling through this word. It's a little bit awkward, but we're, we're keeping this recording. We're going for it. Um, at Rome's... Uh Rome's ability to conquer them military-wise was undoubtable, but then the Greek kind of way of life infiltrated the Roman Empire. And so what you see is kind of this beautiful system where politically things were were solidified across the world. Like there was a common language, there was a common culture, there was there were so many things that happened to help spread the gospel. But the main thing was that the Spirit of God was moving, the Holy Spirit was moving and active. And remember that mission is His work. Mission evangelism, conversations about the gospel. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is the biggest reason why the spread of the gospel continued. But the other part of it, and I think another key to the spread of the gospel, was that everyone, not just this kind of handful of selected people, not just this handful of specialized apostles carried the message, it was for everyone. And as people came to know Christ, they would share what Christ had done. They would share that good news. They would continue to spread that word. 
And so the question kind of becomes for us, well, what does a gospel conversation look like uh, for normal people? Because most of us are not trained, we're not educated. We're going, man, I don't even want to hear the E word evangelism. In fact, as I prepared this, I, I was trying to avoid the word evangelism because I think that for many of us, it can create some anxiety. We're going, oh man, okay, I've got to be official and legit and I've got to know what I'm doing and I've got to do this and this and this and this. I, I don't think it's, I think that we can make it bigger than what it is. I think that what we're called to do is to have conversations and to simply tell people what Christ has done in us, to share the good news for people to simply believe. And so I want to look at three different conversations that we're going to find, find in Luke, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 16. And Acts is written by a man named Luke. He's a very educated, smart man. In fact, what we may or may not know of Luke is that this city of Philippi, which is where these three conversations happen for Paul as he's talking to these new converts in the city of Philippi. Philippi might have been the location that's, that Luke was actually educated in. They had a very prestigious uh, hospital or, or education side of things where Luke might have been educated there. And so I want to look at these three conversations regarding these three different people. And so we're going to go ahead and jump into that. We're going to be starting in uh, Acts 16, verse 11. Well, probably uh, more like... Uh, verse 12, because 11 just kind of is the setup. They're trying to get to Philippi. 12 says this. It's basically they sailed to this one location, then to this other location, and then verse 12 picks it up, and it says, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Macedonia was Greece. If For those of you that don't remember that, I had to look that up, so no worries if you do. And it says, we remain there in the city some days. And I think it's important when Luke writes things, he doesn't just write things on a, on a whim. It's not like he gives just basic information or information that's not really pertinent. When Luke writes things, again, very well-educated, well-thinker, he's kind of an investigative journalist, which is what we've heard in the last series, and he is pursuing and tracking down. So when he talks about Philippi being a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, there's certain things that those listeners would understand. Like a colony was considered to be a part of Rome itself. It was not just, you know, part of the, the empire and it just does its own thing. No, it was part of Rome itself, meaning that its people were actually considered Roman citizens. And that was a standing that carried very high privilege. They had the right to vote, uh, they were governed, governed by their own senate, Rome's own senate, and had Roman laws and Latin language. Philippi was also a garrison city with a Roman garrison stationed there to keep it secure. And Paul's day, it was an honored Roman city and military post, and they were very, very proud of the fact of their Roman heritage. They were proud of that. And actually, as you look through it, when the Romans conquered uh, Philippi from the Greeks, they actually established or colonized that area of Philippi by retiring soldiers. In fact, that was continued, possibly a continued practice that continued through the years, but it was colonized by these citizens that were, had spent years in the army, that they were kind of given this area as a retirement gift, if you will. And so it was a mini-Rome. It was governed by two military officials that were appointed directly by Rome, and it was also a strategic passage that controlled the east-to-west travel for Macedonia, for Greece. And so it was a very significant city for in industry, for agriculture, for education, for, and for military purposes. 
And so Philippi was teeming with life and significance. And so for Paul, as he's making his second missionary journey, he was very keyed into the idea of going to a metropolitan area because what happens is that from that area, the gospel continues to spread. And it continues to spread. And so what we see is that there's a huge significance to the city of Philippi. And so Paul is there, and he's looking to continue this, this calling that God has placed on his life to share the gospel, and not only to bring it to the, to the Jews, but specifically to the Gentiles. And this was new. You can go back to the Acts series and listen to that, to the Holy Spirit series. And so continuing on with this, in verse 13, it says, it says this, And on the Sabbath day he went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come there. One of the things that you see is that Luke is using the words we because Luke is actually a part of this missionary journey with Paul. So he is investigating kind of this, the birth of the new church, but also he's spending time here with Paul and Silas and with Timothy. And so it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside um, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So Paul's kind of mode of operation, if you will, is that when he would go into a city, what he would first do is go to a synagogue and preach the gospel there. And so then after that, if he was rejected, the message wasn't heard, or even after he was done spending time in the synagogue, he would then bring it to the Gentiles, those that were non-Jews. But he would start with the place that were the Jews, God's called and chosen people. And so what we see in this Philippi area is that there isn't a synagogue he goes to, but what he refers to is a place that was called a place of prayer. And what this means is that there wasn't most likely enough men in that area of Philippi that they would constitute enough people to actually have a synagogue. They would need at least 10 men to establish a synagogue. So what we see is that there is not only a lack of Christians that are there, because Christianity is brand new, but there's also a lack of Jews that are in this area. So they go to this place of worship that was beside a river, and that was strategic as well because it had to do with a ceremonial washing that a Jew would do. So a place of running water would make sense. So it, there wasn't basically a church that was meeting. There wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't enough Jews. It was such a Roman kind of uh, loyal and densely populated Roman area that there was very little Jewish significance and probably no Christian significance in this moment. And so basically he goes down and he speaks to the women that had come there. So Paul is looking for a synagogue and he kind of ends up at a women's Bible study. That's kind of the reality of where he lands. And so it was his custom to do that, looking for a place of worship. Um, and it's also interesting that possibly why they were outside of the city, I found this one commentary, um, it, it said that uh, it's, it's possible that it was what the Roman culture would do is that it was illegal to bring an unrecognized religion into the city. And so it was apparently inscribed in one of the gates or at the gates of Philippi that you couldn't bring an unrecognized um, religion into the city, or at the very least that it was illegal to try and proselytize to the Romans. If you weren't Roman, I guess they didn't care as much. But within the city, you could not do that. That would be considered illegal. It would be illegal to bring an unrecognized religion into the city. Um, let me just read what it said. Inscribed on the arches on the way into the city. This may have been the reason for the prayer meeting being held outside of the city on a riverbank. During the first years of Christianity's expansion, the new religion was considered a sect of Judaism by the governors. 
As such, the Christian faith was a licit religion with its freedom of practice guaranteed by the Romans. But it's possible that maybe even this group of people doesn't know or fully understand how the Roman laws intersect or interact with this, with this desire to live for God. So Paul goes to this women's Bible study, and there he meets this woman named Lydia. So continuing on, verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so here's the first convert that we see in the city of Philippi. This is the first person that hears and responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is kind of say, okay, well, what do we know about this? Verse 14, there's kind of a lot going on there. There's some things that we can dig up if we understand the context, we understand what's happening here. So who was Lydia? And Lydia basically was a seller of purple of purple goods. And what this means is that Lydia was probably her own CEO, if you will. Like, she is a seller of purple goods. She's from Thyatira, so most likely she's ethnically Asian. Um, She's from Thyatira, but has a house in Philippi, so she's also most likely wealthy. You don't have a house kind of here and there. Both of those locations were metropolitan areas. So she was pretty well established. And the fact that later on she invites the disciples to come and stay with her, she would have had enough room to where that exchange or that uh, invitation wouldn't have been awkward. So judging by most likely the size of her house that she could offer that, she is a very wealthy, put-together CEO, if you will. In today's standards, what we should think is that she is kind of, uh, uh, let me read, a wealthy businesswoman, think put well together, driven, brilliant, well-known, well-respected. Essentially, she's a modern-day CEO of her own fashion empire with houses in New York and Paris is how it would be easy to kind of identify her. But she's also identified as kind of a God-fearer. And she rejected paganism and polytheism and was wrestling with what it means to be a to live a God-fearing life. That's why she's at this Bible study. Why would she come to this Bible study if she wasn't interested in learning how to actually live in a way that would please and honor the one true God? And so she's an intellect that is apparently looking and seeking for answers, trying to figure this out, listening to the Torah, which was the first five books of the Jewish Bible, or the five, first five books of the Bible that was the Jewish Bible at that point, and had likely had some concept of her need for atonement. But without the good news of Jesus, she was confused. So the question then becomes, well, how does she actually get saved? Again, we're taking a lot out of verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, the seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Well, how does she actually become saved? Through exposing her to the gospel exposing her to God's word. So Paul engages Lydia's reason, he engages her intellect, and it's through the impartation of this knowledge that she becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul fills in the spiritual framework, if you will. He engages her in Bible study, and as he is speaking, God opens her heart to the gospel. And maybe for the first time, she sees and hears and understands what is required of her for for her to be a God-fearer, to be a Christian, to be a believer. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. And that word pay attention there is a very interesting word within the Greek. I'm not going to try and say the Greek word because it's impossible for me to do. Um, That word translates into addiction. So while 
And while he was speaking, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. The idea is that she becomes addicted to it. She begins to crave it. She begins to crave God's word. She desires to, to hold to it, to turn to it, and to attend to it. And so Lydia is the first convert that we see in Acts 16. Continuing on, verse 15 says this, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love that last part. She prevailed upon us. Again, think CEO. She's probably pretty good at negotiating, and her negotiation skills were so good that she prevailed against Paul and his companions on this trip. And so this is the first convert, is that Lydia, kind of the rich businesswoman, if you will. The second conversation is the slave girl. And we're going to continue on in verse 16 and 17. It says this, as we were going to the place of prayer, as we were met, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this is that same place of prayer, most likely not the same day. It's probably another day that happens, and they were there. They spent some time there. So as they're going there again, they're engaged by the slave girl who had a spirit of div- divination and brought owners much money by, slave, uh, by fortune telling. Verse 17 says, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this is pretty interesting because when we compare Lydia to the slave girl, we have polar opposites. Lydia we see as somebody who's controlled, who's educated, who's intellectual, who's engaging in that. And then we have this other woman who is probably in her mid-teens or maybe even younger than that, who is not in control at all. In fact, there's a demon in her that she prophesies by this demon that's in her and and her owners, she's a slave, her owners are exploiting her to make money, to gain wealth. And so you see this absolute contrast between the two. Lydia is Asian. Well, this girl is most likely Greek. Lydia is in control and intellect. This girl is impoverished, enslaved, exploited, and out of control. Lydia is a seeker. And this girl, while she proclaims the way of salvation... Perhaps she's doing that unwittingly, um, maybe under demonic control, but she believes salvation is available to the same level that the demons do. But she is not in control. She's a seeker. This girl is not going to a Bible study. One, because she's a slave. Even if she wanted to go, she can't. And, And two, she's not interested in going to a Bible study. So we see these two polar opposites She's not on her way to the prayer meeting. She couldn't go if she wanted to, and she has no interest in going. She's probably in her mid-teens, as I already mentioned. She has a demon, and she's a slave, which means that she is spiritually and economically captive. She is at the mercy of her captors. She is at the mercy of her masters. She doesn't have anything probably to her name. She does what she is told because she's in a place where she has to. And so we continue on, verses 18 and 19, and this is what it says. And this she kept doing for many days, following the disciples, saying, they're, of, uh, they, they're servants of the Most High, proclaim the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Verse 18 again. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Again, this is just fascinating and fun for me because it's not like Paul was deeply moved in spirit. Like, God had just given him a heart that broke for this this woman. No, Paul was annoyed. He was angry. He was agitated. Like, he was peeved. That's really what it was. Like, 
Paul, after several days or times, you know, he becomes greatly annoyed. And this is what happens. It says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed after many days of this happening, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Continuing on verse 19, it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So here is Lydia, this intellectual, in control, kind of well-to-do, well-known, like powerful woman. And then there is this slave girl who is out of control that is screaming at them. He, here's these guys. And two completely different people, two complete different experiences that they have. And I was kind of, as I was studying this, one of the questions that I had, well, well, it's weird. Why was the demon-possessed girl, why was she declaring that these men are, are servants of the Most High God? And what she was claiming was actually true. So why was she doing that? And then why did Paul get annoyed at that? Like, it, it almost doesn't make sense. And I found a commentary. It's the, the Life Application Concise New Testament commentary that spoke to that that I just want to read to you. It says, What the slave girl said was true, although the source for knowledge was a demon. Paul and his companions indeed were servants of the Most High God, and in fact were telling others how to be saved. Why did a demon announce the truth about Paul, and why did this annoy Paul? If Paul accepted the demon's word, he would appear to be linking the gospel with demon-related activities, not to mention the prophecy-for-profit approach that this girl's owners had taken. Such association would damage the message of Christ. And so we can see and understand why. So how does she actually get saved? Well, she gets saved through this act of deliverance. <laughs> Even this annoyed action, like in a moment, in an instance, she is delivered. She's both attracted to this faith and also antagonistic towards it. She's held captive and drawn towards Christ, yet has an anger and a mistrust within her through a moment where she has a life-altering experience and is no longer the circus act for her masters to make money off of. With this slave girl, the gospel gets at her heart when Paul engages her spiritually. And the deliverance of the gospel takes on the context of the personal need. For Lydia, that need was an intellectual need. For this girl, it was a spiritual need. So the gospel takes on the context of the personal need. And so continuing on with this passage, we're going to see uh, number three, conversation or conversion three, if you will. And that's continuing on in this cha chapter. We're going to read down uh, through verse 34. And this is what it says in 19. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. This, this is interesting here because what we just heard in, in verse, 18, or verse 19, it says when they saw that their hope for gain was lost. Luke, the writer of Acts, is identifying what the actual source of the problem is. But when these men stand before the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing the city. So right away, you can tell that there's a prejudice that's there. These men who are Jews, again, highly Romanized or, or highly Roman colony. This is uh, many Roman men and women live there or those that are kind of in or loyal to Rome. However, the Jews were so scarce that they're going, hey, here's these Jews, these 
lowly, lame Jews. Here's these guys that are stirring up problems, that are, that are trying to do what we have inscribed on our walls that they can't do. They're trying to proselytize. And so what they do is they stir up issues. The charge of the slave girl's owners against Paul and Silas were obviously prejudicial. Shortly before this ancient, uh, before this incident, the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. We can read that in Acts 18.2. It says, Philippi, a Roman colony, would have caught this flavor of anti-Semitism and also helps explain why Timothy and Luke were not taken before the authorities. So Timothy and Luke, man, they are Gentiles, so they're not really worried about taking them. There's four people in the party, but only Paul and Silas are taken, and that's because they're Jews, or at least for Timothy, he was a half-Gentile or a half-Jew or, um, excuse me, for Silas, he was also a Jew. Timothy was a half-Gentile, and Luke was also a half-Gentile. And so continuing on, verse 21, it says, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Again, they were accused of disrupting the city by advocating customs of, that were unlawful to Romans to practice. Again, Rome permitted the peoples of its colony to have their own religion, but not to proselytize to Roman citizens. And so the civil leaders could not you know, distinguish between Judaism and Christianity. Jude, Judaism would have been protected. It was illicit or allowed religion, but they can't tell the difference in that moment. They're going, wait, isn't this a Jewish thing? But they're saying it's not. So they're concerned about kind of keeping the law. That was one of their jobs. So they would see the preaching of Paul and Silas as a fragrant infraction of imperial law. So continuing on, verse 22, it says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This seems like it's a really severe, like, wow, okay, they ripped clothes off and then they got beaten. That seems really severe. And the reality is, is that it was. Rome was a very, what's, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. Rome was a very vicious and very difficult empire to be a part of. Like, you did not want to go against Rome. The Roman crucifixion obviously being the worst of the worst, just by the mere idea of people being caught and crucified was enough to frighten them to stay away from certain acts or deeds. But this was a very difficult time. And so these two Roman officials, interested in keeping the law, and it was an important part of their job, and also to enforce the law against foreign religions proselytizing to Rome as in their Roman colony. They were interpreting the law to say that their, the exorcism was proselytizing Judaism, and thus the uh, accusers were effective. And so they were taken, and they were given lots of beatings, and that was also part of what they would do. See, it wasn't just about the punishment. It was about the humiliation of it as well. So they were stripped of their clothes so that this would be an example for other people to not do. When Paul, or when, when Rome, as Rome itself, or Rome as in its colonies, when they disciplined, they were severe. And it was intense. And so Paul and Silas are, are stripped naked and beaten with rods. I found this in the Bible background commentary. It says, unless the accusers, accused were Roman citizens, because if you were a Roman citizen, you were saved from this type of torture. And also what I read in this is that it was common practice for actually, for their, before there being interrogation, if you were not a Roman citizen, you would be beat just to be kind of prepared for your interrogation. And so, so this, the Bible background commentary says, unless the accused were Roman citizens, they were normally beaten before the trial as a means of securing evidence. 
In practice, lower-class persons had few legal protections. Roman magistrates, attendants called listeners, carried rods in bundles, and with these rods, they beat the foreigners here. Sometimes, as were the accused, were stripped first. Public beatings served not only to uh, secure evidence, but also to humiliate those beaten and to discourage their followers. And what's interesting is as you continue, kind of in the verses that we won't get to today, but in verses 35 through 40, what you see is that Paul is actually a Roman citizen. So he tries to make right, like he shouldn't have been beaten. They shouldn't have been beaten without a trial. And so as the magistrates hear this, man, they're a little bit fearful. They could, uh, again, that same power that they were using as the Roman officials, now that power of Rome could be turned against them. So Paul kind of goes through to try and make things right, maybe even to help out this early, the birth of the early church, to kind of put some distance to say, hey, we were in the right, and you can't do this. And so maybe even to help out there, but this is kind of what's happening, is that we're introduced here then in verse 23 uh, to this jailer who was given to them in order to beat them with rods. And verse 24 says this, um, or 20, and let me just read 22, and then we'll get to 24. It says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off, off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. This is the first time that we see the third person, the jailer, or what I would call the average Joe, the blue-collar guy. Verse 24, Having received his order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. And so we meet person number three, the Joe, uh, the Joe, or the blue-collar guy, kind of, I, I just call him Joe. I'm not really sure what his name is. Um, but who is he? And, and that's an important part of this. Jailers most often were actually highly decor- decorated Roman soldiers who, as a retirement gift, were given jails to run. And that would even make more significance and more, like, more sense if we look at Philippi, who was colonized by these retiring soldiers. So he is somebody that is kind of older. He's somebody that's probably been hardened through war and through the conflicts and through the things that he's seen, through this power and authority that he has. And on some level, it's probably safe to assume that he's pretty cynical. Like, he's gotten used to having authority. He's used to being kind of the big man on campus, if you will. And so he is this ex-collar GI, and he is manning the cells. Most likely, he's probably not interested in the incessant banter of the intellectuals. He's not interested in the charismatic hoopla of the spiritual power. He's a guy that just wants to kind of put his time in and go home from work, have a beer, watch the game, and he's just kind of your average normal guy. I don't think he's spending much time thinking about what is the meaning of life. He's just trying to be, you know, honoring to his imperial uh, employers and, and just kind of continuing on to go home to his life. In comparison to Lydia, who's this rich woman and the slave who's poor, he's probably middle ground. He's probably not rich or poor. He's just this average guy. And the reality is, is that he's probably not interested in the gospel. He just doesn't have a need for it within his life. So he puts Paul and Silas into the inner prison. This inner prison were usually the lowest part of the building. It was the most secure location reserved for the worst of the worst. It was dark, dank, and disgusting down there. It's interesting that it says that in verse 24, he he fastened their feet in the stocks. This was not required. The magistrates just said, hey, keep them safe. And what does he do? He puts their feet in stocks. 
And before you get carried away thinking about stocks, this was not your typical, let me put my friend in the stocks, we'll take a few pictures, and it'll be a lot of fun, we'll recall. The stocks that the Romans had, again, they were efficient at being very, very forceful when it came to their punishment. The stocks that they would put them in would actually, they would make them twist and contort their bodies so that their body would actually cramp up, and then they would be left in those stocks for days. And so their feet and stocks they were not easy. They, it would, uh, it would uh, contort the, body, the prisoner's body into all sorts of excruciating pain, locking limbs with searing pain, and the Romans would just leave them for days. The jailer is not commanded to treat his prisoners this way. The magistrate simply asks him to keep the missionaries safe, and instead he tortures them. It's probably pretty safe to assume that this isn't a very nice guy. He's not a great guy. He's probably good at his job, and Maybe on some level, he, he might like it even a little bit too much. He was ordered so that they wouldn't escape. And, and what's interesting is maybe even the severity that he goes to is that maybe what we read in Acts chapter 12 is that Peter, like God does this incredible thing in Acts chapter 12 where he literally walks out of prison. Like, and what he hears is actually the jailer then was responsible. The jailer then had to be put to death because in a Roman colony, a jailer was responsible for the same sentence of whatever that person that, that ran away, that escaped, they would have to then pay the punishment of that person, most likely resulting in death. And so maybe this jailer hears what has happened with Peter. Maybe it's made its way to Philippi, and maybe he's hearing things of people walking out of prison cells and, and jailers being killed because they're their, their, uh, their prisoners got away. And so maybe as his form of maximum security, maybe he puts them in the very center, the very core, the very middle, the inner place, the inner dungeon, and he fastens their feet. Continuing on, looking at his conversion. Acts 16.25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is pretty fascinating because Paul and Silas have just been beaten. They've been humiliated. What started off as what looked like to be this promising missionary journey, the second one, like, starts off really exciting, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in, in prison under trumped-up charges by prejudice, uh, uh, prejudicial people, like, people that are racist, people that don't care, like, and people for no reason that, that beat them. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And what did they do? They responded by prayer and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. What an incredible scene this must have been. Paul and Silas were barely into their, their first, you know, uh, first stop on their promise to be wildly effective uh, Macedonia evangelistic campaign, one God had called them to. And so what did they do? After finding themselves in stocks, after finding themselves beaten, bleeding probably still from the beatings that they took, so what did they do? Did they moan? Did they whine? Did they blame God? Did they give up? Did they throw in the towel? Did they, I am out of here? No. Their jail term was marked by only two activities, by praying and singing hymns to God. I feel like there's so much more that we could go into with that, but that's, that's kind of taking away from where I'm trying to take us to. And the other word that is interesting here, it says that the other prisoners were listening as Paul and Silas sang and prayed. And the Greek word there for listening is a strong word implying that the prisoners were listening intently. At midnight, the, the prisoners were listening intently. Why were they listening intently? Because who sings 
and prays and cries out to God in the middle of their circumstances. That's not natural. That's not normal. So possibly these other prisoners are hearing and seeing this and they're going, what is going on? What, is, what do they know? What do they have that I don't have? Imagine the impact of you as the jailer, the one responsible for torturing them, at least the second part of that. Maybe not the beating part. Maybe that was you were ordered. That's on them. But now the torture part that you own, imagine being the jailer hearing that. Though their bodies were still bleeding and tortured, uh, and tortured in the stocks, their spirits were praising God and thanking him for who, who he was. Verse 26, it says this, And then suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And again, guards were responsible for their prisoners. So for the jailer to see what was happening, bonds to be gone, doors to be open, he knows that if these men and women or these prisoners escape, it's his life on the line. So great earthquake, verse 27. Then the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And then verse 28 says this, and, and it, it is interesting to point out that if in a situation like the jailer, if, uh, if a Roman found himself to where... Um, Suicide was, this, uh, suicide was an option, such as on the battlefield or, in this case, a jailer kind of ex being exposed to this kind of embarrassment, then the Romans actually considered suicide to be noble. So in this case, or in the case of a, a soldier who was critically wounded, they would consider suicide to be noble, which is interesting. So the jailer is about to take his life, and verse 28 says this, And Paul cried out with a loud voice, he said, eat it, you cruel bigot. You deserve this. No, that's not what he said. Again, he's singing praise and hymns, sing, like praying and singing hymns. No, he had a different approach. He had a different mindset. He had a different thought. Paul cried out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Why in the world was Paul still there? Again, I just mentioned that in in Acts chapter 12, Peter goes through this similar thing, and he literally just walks out of jail. Like, God allows him to walk right out of jail. But yet, Paul is still there. The chains came off, the doors came open, and Paul and all the other prisoners, whether that was Paul's leading, and they were just amazed because they're singing for deliverance, maybe, and now all of a sudden there's an earthquake. Imagine what the prisoners were thinking. Imagine what the jailer's thinking. He's about to end his life, but Paul says, no, we are all here. Paul knows that he's innocent. The walls are gone. The chains are off. And it'd probably be safe to assume that this was an act of God. An earthquake just busted everybody out. Pretty safe to assume that like, it would be okay. So why was Paul still there? And I think the answer to that question is because Paul recognized that this is part of the plan that God had to reach Philippi. If part of God's plan to reach Philippi was to put Paul in prison so that he could suffer well before this Philippian jailer, then tell him the reason why he was so happy, then that was the price that Paul was willing to pay. That's incredible to me. On one hand, what you see is, is Paul's freedom on his right hand, the freedom that he deserves, that is, is his that's right for him. And on the other hand, he has a cruel man who has tortured him the night before. And Paul chooses to turn back to him. 
you can see why this was probably so moving to the jailer. Paul shows the jailer a better identity, more fulfilling reality, a greater duty that transcends everything that this guy has previously known. He shows this reality first by example. And after being tortured, the missionary sings and prays. And after becoming free from their bonds, even though the opportunity for escape and revenge is before them, the missionaries stay. And the jailer is blown away. While Paul engaged Lydia through her intellect and the slave girl through spiritual power, he engages the jailer through a living witness to a miracle. So verse 29 says this, And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. You know, at this moment, deeply impacted, the jailer at once becomes alarmed at his spiritual state. Possibly what didn't matter 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes ago, now all of a sudden he's deeply alarmed by. Seeing the response of these disciples, seeing the amazing power of God, and then knowing what the choice that Paul and Silas could have made, and yet they choose to submit themselves to this jailer. His question's filled with significance for the jailer. He must have understood what he was asking. Undoubtedly, he had heard the story of the slave girl and how she had announced that these men were servants of God with the message of salvation. Also, the prayers and the singing of Paul and Silas had reached his ears. This awesome earthquake with a subsequent opportunity for the prisoners to escape and Paul's reassuring words all moved him to ask for the way of salvation. And so verse 31 says this. Or let me read 30. I'm not sure if I read that yet or not. It says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a beautiful picture. What must I do to be saved? Continuing on, 31, it says this, And they said, Believe in the Lord. Something beautiful in that simple, simplistic answer. Believe in the Lord. That is all that is required of salvation. The what is to believe in the Lord. And then the disciples would later explain the how. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Continuing on, and it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then he took them, uh, that was verse 32, uh, verse 33 says, And he took them the same hour to the, of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Verse 34, When he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's a pretty incredible and amazing story. Three conversions, three conversations that happen, and how God moves in each and every single one of them. And I think as we look at this story in Acts 16, and, and I don't want to spend too much more time, I want to wrap up. What I want to do is, is kind of ask the question, well, why did Luke, the writer of Acts, why did he include these three conversations? And I think it's important for us just because the gospel spread by normal people, like you and I having conversations with people. He included these three because, the, because of a couple different reasons. Why are these three stories included in the book of Acts? Because surely there was a lot of t- different people that came to know Christ in, in Philippi, right? Like, this is the second missionary journey. This is, bef- like, in the middle of slide two before it gets to slide three. You know, a small percentage of people being Christians to eventually half of the Roman Empire identifying as Christians. So why did he put these three in there? And I think there's two, two specific reasons. I want to really focus on the second one, that these are listed here. I think 
The reason why this is in Acts chapter 16 is, number one, to show us something about the gospel, namely that the gospel is for everyone. Here are three people that are so uniquely different that would never, probably in any sense, kind of cross paths, that they would not engage and unify to do life except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has a way of unifying people and bringing them together, or at least it should be unifying and bringing us together because there is a unity that comes. The gospel cannot be stopped by the socioeconomic or racial or religious walls we fallen humans build up. In these incredible instances, the gospel defies race, it defies class, defies status, and even defies aptitude. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we tend to prefer to do life with people who are similar to us. We live in neighborhoods and associate with people who look like us and act like us. Most of us go to church with people similar to us. This is the natural tendency of all people, but the gospel is not natural. It is not normal. The gospel blows the doors off our tidy little communes and creates a whole new community that never would have formed without it. The gospel is for everyone. Why are these three stories listed? One, so that we will understand some things about the gospel. There's more that we could go into that, but namely the gospel is for everyone. And then this, the second one that I want to kind of end with that I really want you to hear, the second reason why these three conversations are listed in Acts, I think, is to give us a glimpse of different people in our city and to show us how to reach them. There's three different types of people that these conversations that look so completely different Three kinds of people in our community reached in three different ways. There's Lydia, who is the spiritual interested. There's the slave girl, who's the physical and spiritual captive. And then there's the Philippian jailer, who's the skeptic. And so how do we reach them? And I think we've kind of already talked about them, but very briefly, I just want to give you kind of the highlights of that. For Lydia, the spiritual interested, the best way to reach them is is to expose them to the Bible to just simply expose them to the Bible. They're seeking, they're hungry, they're looking for that, so expose them to the Bible. There's hundreds of ways that you can do that. You can invite them to church where we can hopefully partner with you that they can hear the gospel. We take a long time in these messages to communicate so that you can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about me standing up here. It's not about Josh or any of our other pastors standing up here and just feeling good because we get a talk. It's about you understanding and grasping the gospel and what the implications of that is for our lives. So bring them to church. Invite them to church. Invite them to read the Bible with you. Set up a time and a date to do that. Make a list of the verses. Uh, Make a list of your favorite verses. Ask what it means for you. Ask what it means for them. And then walk through that with them. Use a simple Bible study. The YouVersion Bible app has a ton of different reading plans that you can jump into. All of them good. Do that with somebody. If, If maybe that's not it, a smaller Bible study and a simple one, do a larger one. We have Right Now Media. We have access to that. If you are interested in that, you can go to our webpage. Scroll down to the bottom right for free. You can access over 2,000 different training videos for kids, for adults, for teens, for marriages. There's so many different resources there that you can use. And then if you have questions, you can ask us. We want to help equip you. So how do you do that? Continue to do these things. As you do this, what you're looking for is God to open up their heart like he did for Lydia for them to be exposed to the gospel. Anyone can do this. This is not just extroverts. If you're going, ooh, I just don't know if I have the ability. No, 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 you do. This is for anyone. Be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So for, for the Lydia, for the spiritually interested, expose them to the word of God. The second thing, for the slave girl, the physical and spiritual captive, how are they reached? Just like Paul, we have to get involved in their lives. 
You know what? It, for, for this slave girl, for several days, there's a passing and a walking back and forth. And Paul, probably for, from her screaming and following them, begins to see what's happening and involved and sees the need and responds even to that. Maybe just in anger or annoyance, he responds. But for us, the application is that we need to actually get involved in people's lives. We reach people, people by being in communities, by being among the homeless, by being in pregnancy centers, by being in the foster care system, by shopping with the panhandling family, by moving in college students and by attending campus events. Be there. Showing up is the biggest part of this. By simply being there. We reach them by being present to the needs of those around us, by seeing a need and meeting it not waiting for someone else or for the church to step in. To be honest, guys, since COVID-19, I feel like as the outreach pastor, I'm kind of figuring out what my job looks like because a lot of my job was to gather people and assemble, like to gather people and to go do. And those are two things that in this new era that we're in, I'm not sure if we can do. But you, as a family, as individuals, as believers, you who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can be Acts 29 and go for it and live out the gospel to bring the gospel to all people. Well, how, how do you do that? By being involved in people's lives. By being involved in people's lives. The reality is, is that's very difficult. Sometimes that sets you up for lots of different hardships and challenges. I feel like if I had more time, I could share stories about times where I've brought some people home uh, or brought one specific person that I have in mind home. And, man, it was, it was terrible. I'll just be honest. It was an older gentleman who just was kind of towards the tail end of his life, was just was on his deathbed. And uh, at one point, like just, I guess to give you the highlight, maybe I'll go into more depth on Tuesday at overtime with this, but at the one point, this man lost control of, of being able to, uh, to go to the bathroom. And I remember at one point, like having this thought of going, this is my life right now. As this man is lying in his own mess, this is my life that I'm helping him figure this out. Like that was challenging and difficult, but yet that, that season was, dare I say, something that I was honored that God would allow me to be part of. It's difficult and challenging. I think even now, as I'm, as I'm thinking through this personally, like uh, foster care right now is, is a little bit challenging. There's certain things in the foster care system that I really don't like. There's certain challenges that I'm wrestling through. But my prayer is that God would somehow use me to make a difference for his kingdom, to make a difference for this one person, get involved in people's lives. So for the second person, the slave girl, the, the physically and spiritually captive, get involved. Don't just stand on the sidelines. Get involved. Get in the game. Go for it. The third one is this, that the Philippian jailer, the skeptic, the guy got saved because of two things. One, he observed Paul and Silas's joy in the midst of pain. And two, he was the recipient of extravagant grace. Paul and Silas, maybe Paul could have or, you know, maybe if it was me would have said, yeah, go ahead, eat it, man. As he drew his sword about to kill himself, Paul could have let it happen. But now he stopped him. He was mindful of this man's spiritual importance, like reminded that God wanted to use Paul in incredible ways. And if it meant that Paul had to sit in a Philippian jail so that he ex could explain the good news to a jailer, he was willing to do it. Paul recognized that God had appointed his suffering to reach this jailer. 
which is why he didn't keep, uh, why he didn't run when the earthquake occurred. Instead, he chose to do two things in the midst of it, to keep giving praise to God and to show extraordinary grace. What if in the midst of our pain, the first thought is not, God, what have I done wrong? But God, whose life are you trying to use me in? Pain and unfortunate circumstances are your chance to put your hope and joy in God on display. Pain and tragedy are our best chance to be witnesses. And for some of us, man, that's challenging because you're going, oh, great, I want to be a witness, but I'm not sure about it in that way. But as you think about it, man, some of the best things that happen to you in life are some of the most difficult. Like the things that you remember in life are not the things that come easy and just kind of go by. The things that you remember are the things that were challenging that pushed you beyond what you thought you could do. And I can tell you from personal experience that the things that God calls you to do, the hardest of the things that he calls you to do will be the very things that you will look back and be so thankful that God allowed you to be a part of. And right now I'm honestly preaching to myself a little bit as, as I just shared about some of my thoughts in foster care. But go for it. Pain and tragedy are your best chances to be witnesses. Some of you are in a, a personal prison. You're in a tough job situation. You have chronic health problems. You're the victim of injustice. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't do what you can to remedy it. But what I'm saying is that as you do that, never lose the joy of your possession of Christ. Why shouldn't we lose the, the joy of Christ? Because the prisoners are listening. They're listening intently. Others are watching. Show extravagant grace. Nothing puts the gospel on display like grace in the midst of injustice. What if that was God's purpose for you? To give you a chance to put his grace on display. So I want to invite you now to, to join us as we sing our final song.
everybody again for joining us today. I, I really hope that you were challenged and encouraged by that. And really, my hope is that we would be the next chapter of Acts, that we would be Acts chapter 29, that the Holy Spirit would still move in us and through us to reach the world for his glory and for his kingdom. Let's be the vessels that God uses to bring about the spread of the gospel. Engage the spiritually interested by exposing them to the Bible. Get involved with those who are physically and spiritually captive. Simply be with them. Do life alongside of them. And for the skeptic, show joy in the middle of pain and give extravagant grace. I pray that you were challenged and encouraged today. Um, the Holy Spirit is still living and active inside of us, and he wants to use us in great, incredible ways. I want you to reach out if you have any questions, if there's anything that we can do as a church uh, during this season of kind of post-COVID, but still kind of a little unsure what what we should be doing and where should we sh we should be going um, we're excited hopefully you can join us um, maybe on one of the drive-through services and we are talking through ways that we can actually begin again in-person uh, church services over the weekend so we'll give you more details as we go through that if there's anything that we can do you have any prayer requests please feel free to reach out to us you can call the church office you can email us at info at clcfamily.church we would love to hear from you our prayer this week is that you would be blessed and challenged in all that you do. So thank you so much for joining us and have a great week.